the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Dan Rice, well, he's given up his office for the purpose of broadcasting. Glad to have you with us. Today on the program, we're going to talk to Finn with Zero Res. He's got a special offer he wants you to know about. We'll also find out how the uh, pandemic is impacting their business and how we can, I don't know, help one another. Uh, we're also going to hear from Chris Bruno, author of Paul versus James, what we've missed, what we've been missing rather in the faith and works debate. The book is published by Moody. He'll join us later this hour. And then at the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Andrew Brown, director of the Center for Families and Children at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. We're going to talk about the Oregon salon owner from Salem who says Child Protective Services went to her home after she reopened her business in defiance of the lockdown order. We're going to put this in a broader context, but we'll fill you in on all those details when he joins us in the five o'clock hour. First, at least for the state of Oregon, our top news story, the circuit court judge in eastern Oregon's Baker County on Monday ruled that Governor Brown's executive stay-at-home order is bound by an expiration date. Therefore, the restrictions put into place were null and void. Well, that's not what the Supreme Court said. Uh, Churches have challenged uh, the uh, governor's stay-at-home order. But the Oregon uh, Supreme Court has indicated that that uh, does, in fact, stand at least for the time being. Attorneys Ray Hack, who represented the plaintiffs in that case, and Kevin Mannix, a longtime GOP politician who represented business owners, said that they believe the Baker County judge's ruling would strike down not only the governor's order to, uh, in relation to churches involved in the lawsuit, but for businesses as well. well. The Oregon Supreme Court said, no, the governor's stay is in place, at least for now, until arguments are heard before that court. We mentioned yesterday that after the Baker County judge um, ruled in this case, it was a circuit court judge in eastern Oregon, Baker uh, County on Monday, that the Oregon Supreme Court uh, would uh, hear the case, and they have now stayed the judge's decision, meaning the restrictions under Governor Brown's order remain in effect until the court hears and makes a decision on the state's appeal. Um, So that is the latest on what uh, is happening in the state of Oregon. Also, I want to remind you, if you still haven't voted in Oregon's primary, don't worry, you've got some options. Uh, Oregonians uh, who haven't yet cast their ballots still have time to vote in today's primary. In Multnomah County, voters still have a long list of drop box options, which includes public libraries. Officials are still allowing people to vote in person at election offices, or at least they can vote nearby in their effort to keep people apart. Officials have leased neighboring spaces and spread operations out. We've got our order ahead, uh, replacement ballots pick up across the street from Keller and Keller parking lots, said one elections director. And then we've also contracted with the uh, Hallocene. So, folks, if you need to uh, vote in a voting booth, you can go down, vote securely and privately, deposit your ballot right there. Uh, they point out that people who need to a replacement ballot, language assistance or help filling out their ballot, 
uh, can still get help from a staff person in the county's elections headquarters. County staff also released a video of their uh, uh, more than 100 temporary employees, half the normal crew, counting ballots with masks and gloves. As of Friday, only 24.2% of Oregon's uh, more than 2.8 million registered voters had returned their ballots. In the 2016 presidential election, 53.99% or 54% essentially of Oregonians had voted. In uh, an interview on Monday, Scott said that he expects the usual to uh, the last minute flood of ballots. Have a plan for returning your ballot, he says. If you haven't done that yet, make sure that you know where you're going um, to turn it in and when you're going to turn it in because time is short. So you have until 8 o'clock p.m. this evening. Of course, you cannot drop that in the mail. You have to hand deliver it at this late stage, um, but uh, you still can vote in the state of Oregon. Well, apologist Ravi Zacharias died today, two months after he announced he'd been diagnosed with cancer. He was 74. The popular author and Christian teacher apologist has, um, uh, was known for his work through the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which focused on apologetic argument for the existence of God and the reasonableness of the Christian faith. He preached in more than 70 countries, authored more than 30 books in his 48-year career, teaching Christians to engage with skeptics and arguing that the Christian worldview was robust with answers to humanity's existential questions. He was born in India, raised in an Anglican family. He recounted that his conversion to Christianity came while reading the Bible in the hospital after a failed suicide attempt as a teenager. He emigrated to Canada at the age of 20. He started his ministry with a Christian and Missionary Alliance, a graduate of Ontario Bible College, now Tyndale University, and Trinity International University. He was commissioned as a national evangelist for the United States in 1977 and ordained in a CMA in the CMA in 1980. He founded the Ravi Zacharias International Ministry in 84, and the organization has grown to about 200 employees and 16 offices around the world with more than 70 traveling speakers. So Ravi Zacharias Ministry will continue, but Ravi Zacharias has gone home to his reward. Taking a look at some of the uh, day's headlines, President uh, Donald Trump uh, has threatened to permanently pull funding from the World Health Organization, or WHO. He sent a scathing letter to the World Health Organization late on in the evening, informing them that if there is not major change made in the next 30 days, that the United States may permanently suspend funding to the organization and may withdraw its membership as well. CNN complained in a news story that the threat comes at a remarkable time. The coronavirus pandemic has killed more than 90,000 Americans and more than 318,000 people worldwide as of late Monday. And while there are promising signs from some vaccine trials, there's no cure for the virus. The threat is more proof that Trump's instinct to distrust global institutions at a time when many of his uh, predecessors would rely on such relationship to help stem the tide of the pandemic. Now, keep in mind, <clears throat> the funding cycle means that the United States would not extend funding in the future. We've already covered the period that we're in. So uh, the president attempting to influence the conduct of the World Health Organization, pulling it away from being a mouthpiece for the People's Republic of China. When Nancy Pelosi has called the president morbidly obese and another third grade rant out of Washington using some rather politically incorrect fat shaming to say the president shouldn't be taking hydroxychloroquine. David Harsini said killing an unborn baby is a decision made solely by a woman and her doctor. Taking hydroxychloroquine is a joint decision between a man, his doctor, every Democrat in Congress, and all on-air talent at CNN. 
Another uh, columnist writing uh, on Twitter says the same people that lead the body positivity movement apparently feel comfortable commenting on people's weight publicly. Always good to remember the rules never apply to them. Inez Stepman says, I see that the only time we are allowed to talk about the morbidity, ob- morbidly obese health crisis in America is when we're laughing at Trump's gut. Otherwise, it's body positivity. There's a hashtag before that. Um, Amorite. Our high obesity rate makes us sicker and a higher a percentage of our population at risk for COVID-19. But Trump, which he leaves it at that. Well, the New York Times in an op-ed has blamed uh, conservatives for rip, uh, misrepresenting the hashtag Believe Women. The Susan Faludi piece doesn't spend as much time trying to convince as it does mocking the right. Her big point, it was never hashtag Believe All Women, but only Believe Women. Uh, Tim Carney looks at uh, the many times feminists and Democrats did, in fact, say believe all women, not that uh, there is really any difference. And Emily Jarshinsky says that Susan Faludi, referring to the New York Times piece, wants you to take feminists seriously, but not literally. Her new New York Times piece blames the popularity of believe all women on silly gotcha conservatives for amplifying it with their criticism of the left, not the feminists and the media outlets who embraced the phrase. So it only applies when it's convenient, apparently. Bill de Blasio was targeting another Jewish group, and that's uh, gotten the ire of many. Uh, Earlier today, the NYPD shut down a yeshiva, conducted classes with as many as 70 children. I can't stress how dangerous this is for our young people. We're issuing a cease and desist order, and we'll make sure we keep our communities and our kids safe. Uh, He said on his Twitter, Seth Mandel says one day it'll be uh, legal again to study Torah in New York City. Hmm. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and as mentioned, uh, coming up, we're going to talk with Finn with Zero Res. They have a special this month. We'll tell you all about it and find out how the pandemic is impacting their business and how we can, well, support one another. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As you know, from time to time, we're talking with some of our advertisers to find out how they're doing during this pandemic. We know that uh, many businesses have been hit hard by the fact that we are all sheltering in place. And we wanted to talk with our friends at Zero Res to find out how they're doing and how we can help support one another. Finn with Zero Res joins us now to talk about how... Uh, Zero Res is faring in this new normal. Finn, welcome. How are you doing? Hello, Georgine. I am doing very well. Thank you for having me. Well, let me first ask you how your family is doing. I know that you have uh, kids at home. How has this uh, shelter in place impacted your family? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Great question. I mean, uh, you know, it's been interesting. there's been a lot of good, to be honest. Uh, you know, obviously we, we're playing games. We're spending more time with each other. Sometimes maybe a little bit too much, but you know, <laughs> we since since you have the the kind of show you have here, I, I guess I can say you know sometimes we we we've been trying to do like a little uh, little our own little version of Bible study church on on Sundays, and and it's funny how the kids just uh, they say you know I get so much more out of this. Then I do going to church because I have these teenagers that go to church and they're they're on the phones and they're kind of like this is so dumb why do I have to be here but they've they've ha- you said had really good fee- uh, positive feedback about that and that's been a blessing. 
Yeah, well, there's a silver lining in every dark cloud, I guess. Well, Zero Rest has been an advertiser here on KPDQ for many years, and our sister station as well. And we want to really support our advertisers, as you've supported uh, this uh, radio station. Let me ask you how Zero Rest is doing during this pandemic. Has it impacted your business? Um, And uh, just give us kind of an overview. Yeah, it's been it's been huge. It's been, I mean, to be quite frank, uh, yeah, it's just like lots of other businesses, it's been very devastating. Um, but I mean, we we are open and essential and operating, but we just you know we did lay off most of our staff initially, and we were you know right away we were down to like ten percent capacity, which I guess is more than some other businesses that had to completely close. But I mean, we're we're operating. We have come up to about you know. 35, 40% normal capacity, which, I mean, it's better than nothing, but it's it's very painful, uh, to be quite frank with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's important for us to know that. Now, for listeners who think, you know, I'd love to have the carpet cleaned at this time. I'd love to have my upholstery cleaned in the way that Zero Res does it, which is an industry leader. But I'm, I'm concerned about having folks come into the house. How are you accommodating our current uh, circumstance and providing services that uh, KPDQ listeners and others are looking for? Yeah, well, we just, uh, I mean, we recognize that, that, yeah, it's kind of a unique time for, <clears throat> for, uh, for that. So all our technicians are equipped with masks like, uh, you know, most businesses are and they wear a fresh pair of gloves and booties in each house. And, and actually in between each job, what we're doing is disinfecting our equipment, you know, the main equipment that we bring in. Um, so, I mean, it's just, I mean, there's only so much you can do, obviously, but, you know, we're, we're keeping a, a distance from people and just kind of doing those regular things and, and uh, hoping that that makes a difference. Yeah, well, I appreciate your mentioning that because I think people wonder, is it possible? Is there a way to have the work done um, with this uh, circumstance? And you all have taken steps to make sure that when you enter people's homes that you're observing what we've been told is in the best interest of not only your employees, but the people that you're servicing as well. Now, you mentioned that your business is down and still, and this I think reflects a bit of the heart mm-hmm. of Zero Res. Still, um, this month you've been giving away free cleaning to heroes in our community. Tell us a little bit about that. That's right. Yeah, we're kind of excited about that. Uh, um, just trying to give back a little bit. I know it's not a lot, but yeah, every week uh, this month in May, we're giving away uh, one free cleaning uh, up to a three hundred dollar value to one person or one family. Uh, week one, we, you know, we were really excited to give uh, a free cleaning away to a, a family, the, both the mom and dad. They work at Dornbecker's uh, in the ICU unit and got four kids. So, you know, they were excited. We haven't cleaned for them yet, but they're scheduled. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so, yeah, every week we're just, it could be, it could be a, a first responder or a nurse or, you know, just a family in need. So uh, just something we want to do this month. I don't know if we'll be able to continue it longer. We'll see. But um, yeah, just a little something this month we're kind of excited about. And we're asking people to give us nominations. And it's worked out great so far. And we just ask people to go to our Facebook page, Zero Res Portland Facebook page, and just message us with your nominations. And we've got some really, you know, heart, uh, heartfelt, you know, touching, touching ones. It's been hard to decide, to be honest. Yeah, and again, I think that's such a generous offer, especially when Zero Res, like so many of our neighbors, are seeing less uh, business during this season for you to take the step to benefit 
uh, those in our uh, community that are struggling or um, are giving the utmost to serve in the community. That's really a, a tremendous gift. And again, the Zero Res Portland Facebook page, and you can nominate a family, an individual, a hero, someone who's struggling. Um, and Zero Res is going to select this and for the remainder of the month, one a week, a hero in our community. Just a, a great idea. How can we support Zero Res in the weeks ahead as we are all struggling to you know, re- resort back to new normal and to support those businesses that support the things that we care about? Well, uh, you know, certainly for us, I mean, uh, if you call us up and have you clean, have us clean for you, that, that certainly helps us. And and obviously, we uh, are a firm believer that that we're helping by doing that. I mean, I, I don't know if you you know want to get into you know the you know science of it at all, but you know a, we're just we're really getting the message out that a clean home is a healthy home, a clean office is a healthy office. Um, obviously, with this you know COVID nineteen situation, I mean, if uh, you know if people are uh, if you get this virus, you know it's it can be, you know, pretty devastating. But what we're finding is honestly that the virus itself is shockingly easy to kill, you know, when it's not inside your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, the EPA, the CDC, they they're all really pushing the fact that hey, cleaning is a really essential step in in sanitizing and, and disinfecting. All those things are a little bit different level. But the cleaning is the first and most important step. And, uh, in fact, we do offer some disinfecting, you know, options as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, we just want to clean for people and, and, uh, and, and do it safely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier that Zero Res really is an industry leader in this area. Uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with the unique patented uh, way that you approach not only cleaning carpets and, and upholstery, but as you've pointed out, other ways of cleaning as well. Can you just review that for, for uh, listeners so that they are aware of the kind of significant work you're doing? Uh, well, we, you know, our name is Zero Res, uh, which means zero residue. So we leave zero residue behind. We we don't clean with soaps or harsh chemicals. This is the message we've been, uh, you know, putting out there for a yep. decade here in Portland. And, um, and we, we clean with something that's a, it's a patented technology. It's called powered water. And, uh, you know, I won't get into bore you with the science per se, but, but yeah, it takes the place of soaps and harsh detergents and de- and, and chemicals. And, uh, it, it's an even more powerful cleaner. Um, and 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 then it it also doesn't leave any residues and no soap in it, <clears throat> and so your carpets are going to feel really soft. Um, they're going to stay cleaner longer because there's no soap uh, residue behind that left behind. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that's that's our basic message. And and to be honest, uh, you know I mean if we can if I can just toot my own horn, you know Zero Res has actually been lab tested, and they have tested. Uh, proven to remove, they have been proven to remove more soil than any other carpet cleaner that's ever been tested, ever. And that's by the, the Carpet and Rug Institute. Um, and so that's kind of an exciting thing, you know, that, that we can show people. Absolutely. Well, you know, we've been in our homes more than we probably care to, and we might be more aware of the fact that our carpets need cleaning because we're likely to be in our homes for a long period of time. So I would encourage uh, lately, you. Lately, like, yes. 
If you'd like to support a KPDQ advertiser and a, our sister station, The Fish, consider Zero Res. They do great work. They've cleaned the carpets in my home, so I can say personally that they're respectful when they come into your home, and when they leave it, it's uh, it's cleaner and, and refreshed, and uh, you, you will enjoy that benefit. And they've made accommodation for our current circumstance, so they can clean your carpets now uh, with all the... Uh, uh, the protective gear and everything that we've come to expect. Uh, also, this month, they're giving away free cleaning to a winner, um, one a week, and you can nominate a deserving hero uh, at their we- their Facebook page at Zero Res Portland. Now, if they would like to call to have you come to the home to do some cleaning, is that where they need to go, or should they go to the website? Um, both. Uh, well, either one is okay. Uh, we Yeah, you can, you can go to our website, zeroresportland.com. You can book an appointment online there but we are uh we we have staff on hand uh, you can call in um and book an appointment as well excellent well we are so glad that you are still a part of the kpdq family and we want to keep you uh, with us for a long period of time and i'd like to encourage our listeners to consider contacting zero res to have some great work done to get your house uh, zero res clean finn appreciate so much yeah. you're taking the time to talk with us Yeah, thank you so much, Georgine. I appreciate it. Thank you. Again, you can go to ZeroResPortland.com. Go to ZeroResPortland, the Facebook page. Great folks. They do great work, and now is a great time to have it done. Coming up, we're going to hear a classic interview with Chris Bruno, Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. The book is published by Moody. I think you'll enjoy it, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Paul versus James. No, it's not a boxing match, but the book by the same name, What We've Been Missing in the Faith and Works Debate, asks the question whether or not there are irreconcilable differences between the two. Everything you never knew about the men behind the controversy. Put uh, James and Paul next to each other and some tough to answer questions will come up. Paul says we're saved by faith alone. James seems to say the opposite. What does he? Well, this book, Paul versus James, dives into the life stories of both apostles, learning more about the context of their letters and discovers the truth about the shared message they both proclaimed. My guest is Dr. Chris Bruno. He serves as assistant professor of New Testament and Greek at Bethlehem. College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He previously taught Bible and theology at Cedarville University and Northland International University and served as a pastor at Harbor Church in Honolulu, Hawaii. He and his wife, Katie, have four sons. He joins us today to talk about his book, Paul versus James, What We've Been Missing in the Faith Works Debate. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm so glad to be on with you. Well, I so appreciate your taking this um, this subject on because there does seem to be uh, not only discomfort but uncertainty about how to address um, the what the apparent controversy, the apparent contradiction between these two apostles who contributed to the scriptures and were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's begin by uh, asking the question that your introduction raises: Are there irreconcilable differences between the two, or do we have uh, um, a misunderstanding about what's being said? Yeah, well, I, I absolutely agree with these, what you said a moment ago, in that these are both part of the inspired scriptures. They're part of holy scripture that God has given to us. And uh, not only that, when we actually read what they're saying and try to understand the, the context of their letters both what they're arguing against and what they're arguing for, rather than seeing a contradiction, what we really have uh, with James and Paul is a remarkable 
harmony, excuse me, and symmetry uh, in their messages. They, they hit a lot of the same notes. They might do it in a slightly different harmony, but they hit a lot of the same notes. Well, as you know, there are those historically in the church. In fact, the, this uh, James has been called the Epistle of Straw by who was it? Um, um, Martin, Luther. Martin Luther, thank you. Uh, so yeah. there's been real confusion, even among those uh, luminaries of the faith, as to whether or not um, these two agree with one another, or that perhaps James was just mistaken in what he had to, had to say. Yes, um, even uh, Martin Luther, as you said, called the Epistle of James a uh, epistle of straw that has nothing of the gospel about it, which sounds pretty harsh. Mm-hmm. Actually, as I was writing the book, I, I did a little more digging. I found that, that Luther never rejected the book of James. He never said it wasn't part of Holy Scripture. He never said it wasn't part of the, the, the canon. Uh, what he did is he said uh, the gospel is not as clear in the epistle of James as it is in other books. So it, it's not quite as bad as it might first sound, mm-hmm. but it's still not something that I would agree with. But uh, the funny thing is, is Luther himself in other places said things that were very similar what we see in James chapter 2 about the the inseparability of faith and works. In his preface to his commentary on Romans, he said, uh, like light and heat, faith and works are inseparable. So uh, while Brother Martin may have uh, spoken uh, a little bit uh, out of turn, uh, at the end of the day, I I think he, he would have agreed with many of the things that that we're saying today. Now, why do you think there's so much confusion about how to reconcile uh, these two contributors to the New Testament and why they are often used as an example of uh, the the Bible being um, contradictory? Yeah, well, I mean, the verses that you alluded to a moment ago, uh, Romans 3.28, Paul says, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That seems pretty clear, justification by faith alone. Uh, but then if you read in James 2, James 2.24, says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So uh, on the surface, that sounds pretty jarring. That sounds different. But I, I think one of the keys is to understand not only the, the bigger picture, that they're agreeing in the big picture of how they, they put faith and works together, but then even specifically in the context of their arguments, what they're arguing for and what they're arguing against. So Paul, on the one hand, says we are not justified by works of the law. And it's these certain kind of works that somehow make us right with God, that make us a part of his people. So what he's really arguing against at the end of the day, I think, is some kind of works righteousness. That is, we win our approval, we win our justification, we win our salvation uh, before God based on what we do. And to that argument, Paul says, no way. There's, we are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone. Now, now James is arguing against a different opponent. James is arguing against people who might say, um, yes, we're justified by faith alone. So I believe that Jesus is Lord. Check. And they just sign a card or make some kind of uh, empty profession of faith or they just know the right things, or they know the right things to say. So this is uh, what some people call just intellectual assent. Yes, we kind of nod our head at that. But it doesn't actually transform us in any real way. This is the kind of faith that James is arguing against. 
So when he says justification is not by faith alone, he, he's not using faith the same way that Paul is. He, he's almost putting faith alone in like scare quotes there. We're not justified by quote unquote faith alone, the kind of faith that's just like the demons have. It's just knowing the right things, but not actually leaning on Christ as our Savior. One of the things in the first part of your book that you emphasize is the context in which uh, both James and Paul are teaching that they are addressing, as you've just pointed out, specific concerns um, that uh, emphasize or de-emphasize certain aspects of the faith. So context is important in understanding both James and Paul. And once we understand the context, we recognize that they're really on the same page, making the same point rather than uh, contradicting one another. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Their their broader context that they they shared so much. When you actually think about their whole life story and kind of zoom out that way, they shared. Uh, you know, they both grew up in Jewish homes where they learned the Old Testament. They grew up uh, reciting, no doubt, uh, the Torah, the Shema, Deuteronomy six four. But they also rejected Jesus as uh, the Messiah when they first. Uh, heard about him. So James is the brother of Jesus. Uh, The Gospel of John tells us that his brothers did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. And then we know Paul's story from the book of Acts. He persecuted the church. So different in that way, but they both rejected Jesus' claim to be the Messiah until they they both individually had an encounter with the risen Christ that really transformed their lives. And as a result of that, they both spent the rest of their lives proclaiming the same gospel message, teaching about the fulfillment of God's covenant promises and the new covenant, teaching about the fulfillment of the law, teaching about how Christians now on this side of the the cross and resurrection are to live in obedience to God. So they they have so much in common, both in their, their early history and in their later message. And even in the book of Acts, we see times where they interacted with each other and agreed together on the gospel message. You write in the introduction, New Testament, uh, the New Testament was not written in a sterile seminary classroom. They were writing field survival guides while, while they were in the field. As we understand their backgrounds and the shared message and mission of James and Paul, we might be surprised to find how close these men were. They had a shared commitment to reaching the entire Roman Empire, the entire world with the gospel of Jesus Christ at a time. Uh, and at times they worked closely together to devise a strategy for this mission. So uh, understanding the whole sweep of Scripture, the context in which each of these men uh, ministered will help us understand their intent and the audience to whom they are speaking. Yes, that's correct. So, I mean, as as, a, as I was mentioning a moment ago, they had a, a shared message. So we see in places like um, Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem Council is typically uh, no, that chapter is typically called the Jerusalem Council, where the apostles came together to talk about how do we deal with these Gentiles who are coming to faith. And we see Paul and James agree on a shared gospel message. They agree that you know, salvation is by faith alone. They agree that Gentiles don't have to keep the law. And so, and then they agree that Paul will go out to the Gentile churches and proclaim this gospel message to them. And so they have all this agreement, but then James stayed in Jerusalem for the rest of his life. So as we read the epistle of James, we see it's almost like the Proverbs of the New Testament. It has a very kind of a mm-hmm. Jewish feel to it. I mean, the whole New Testament has a Jewish feel to it. It's a, you know, written by Jewish Christians. But James in particular feels like 
the Proverbs of the Old Testament. He's writing to other Jewish Christians who know the law, who probably know the teaching of Jesus. He's correcting misunderstandings. And one of those misunderstandings apparently was that uh, some were teaching kind of an extreme version of justification by faith alone. So it's a faith alone that doesn't require any law-keeping, which is different than saying you don't have to keep the law to be saved. That's one thing. But to say after you're justified, it doesn't matter what you do. It's a whole different animal. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking about a fascinating book, Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate. Now, after considering their lives, their callings and the mission, uh, the context of their teaching, the next segment of the book um, focuses uh, and turns the attention on their teaching, each of their teachings on justification. So we'll uh, get into that when we return from this quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Chris Bruno, he's the author of Paul versus James, What We've Been Missing in the Faith and Works Debate. In the first part of the book, he looks at the lives of James and Paul, and it answers some of the questions we might otherwise have about what they're saying that seems to contradict. In the second part of the book, they took a, uh, he takes a look at the letters of James and Paul uh, and uh, their message and mission and uh, their teachings on justification. So again, uh, looking at whether or not there's a clear contradiction or there's harmony in the scriptures, even between James and the Apostle Paul. Well, let's let's go there um, in the second part of the book in which you look at their teachings on justification. Let's start with James, and then if you could uh, contrast that uh, with Paul. Sure. Um, maybe before I even contrast it, I'll, I'll, I'll note, note a point of commonality between mm-hmm. the two. It, in that they both cite the Old Testament. They're both quoting the Old Testament, and they're both quoting a specific verse from the Old Testament, Genesis 15, verse 6. And the reason why I bring that up is it's, it's important to notice how they're quoting that text and what they're looking at from the life of Abraham. So Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So this is the kind of fundamental statement of justification by faith alone, in the Old Testament, really the foundation of the, the doctrine and the whole rest of Scripture. So Abraham believed God. He believed God's promises. He believed God's promise, covenant promises that he would, uh, through Abraham's family, bless all the nations and all that goes into that. So there, there's a, a real sense in which Abraham had faith in Jesus, how much he knew, the specifics, things like that uh, we can debate about. But Abraham had faith in God's promises that culminated with Jesus. And as a result of that, he was declared righteous. He was justified. So James cites that verse in uh, James chapter 2 in his discussion of justification by faith. But he cites it kind of looking back over the whole scope of Abraham's life. He's kind of standing in Genesis 22. Now, Genesis 22 is the... uh, the account of Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him, which was stopped at the last minute. But this is pointed to in the Old Testament as the fundamental example of Abraham's obedience. So what James is doing is looking at Genesis 15 through the later uh, obedience of Abraham in Genesis 22. And he's saying that Abraham's righteous status, he was declared righteous, the status was later fulfilled 
by his obedient actions. So really what James is saying is you cannot have justification by faith apart from good works. So he's teaching justification by faith. He never denies justification by faith in the, in the way that we understand it. He, he says we're not justified by faith alone in a fake way. We have a wrong understanding of faith. But he doesn't deny justification by faith. He simply says justification by faith results in a status which results in transformed lives. So it's all rooted in our union with Christ. So James is affirming uh, Genesis 15:6, and he's showing the fulfillment, the working out of Genesis 15:6 later in Abraham's life. Now, when Paul quite quotes that same verse in Romans 4, when he's talking about justification, he's standing at a different place in Abraham's life. He's actually standing in Genesis 15:6. We can put it that way, looking forward the rest of Abraham's life. But in Genesis 15, 6, at that moment, when Abraham truly believed God's promises, he had the status righteous. He did nothing to earn that status of justified. The rest of his life bore that out. In fact, later in Romans 4, in Romans 4, uh, 20, Paul says that Abraham grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. So his life was transformed because of his faith which is really the same message that James himself is teaching. So they're looking at Genesis 15, 6, but they're using it in slightly different ways. Paul's looking at the beginning of Abraham's life or the beginning of uh, his faith, and James is looking at later, you know, decades after Abraham first believed God's promises and saying his justified status will be fulfilled through a transformed life. In the third part of the book, you look at the legacy of James and Paul. In other words, what difference does uh, what they teach make in the lives of the believer and uh, the life of the church? Yeah, that's right. I mean, at at the end of the day, uh, this teaching and our understanding of it should transform the way that we live. Uh, The way we understand faith and works is really important. And and the the church has... uh, struggled with this through the centuries in different ways. While most Christians throughout the centuries have recognized the difference between faith and works and the uh, inseparability of the two, uh, we tend to fall into a ditch on either side. Mm-hmm. Right? We tend to fall into the ditch of uh, an legalism and works righteousness, saying it's what I do that wins favor with God. It's what I do that justifies me. Or we fall into the other ditch, which is as long as I say the right things and kind of give intellectual assent to the right things, then I'm fine, that I can live however I want. And, you know, there, there's variations of those two, but we, we tend to lean toward one of those on one side or the other. And those are exactly the things that Paul and James are arguing against. You write that to misunderstand the New Testament's unified teaching on faith, works, and justification will minimize the seriousness of sin, the transforming power of the gospel, and the very nature of our hope in Christ. This there, uh, this is no light matter. So trying to grasp what's being taught in Scripture in by these two uh, writers is essential to our full appreciation and the fullness of our walk uh, of faith. Absolutely. I mean... We are justified by faith alone, period. We are made right by faith because faith unites us to Christ 
and Christ is our only hope. But as a result of that, anybody who is united to Christ will not be left alone. We will be transformed into his image. Um, and the, the whole Bible is crystal clear about both sides of this equation. And if we get one side or the other wrong, then we're, we're in danger of, of uh, falling off a cliff. To use the, these are more than bitches. They can be cliffs. And if we get it seriously wrong, we could distort the very message of the gospel and our hope of salvation itself. So it's a serious thing. Yes. Again, the title of the book, Paul versus James, what we've been missing on the faith and works debate. The book is published by Moody, and I imagine available where books are are available? Yes, uh, Amazon, the Moody Publishers website. Uh, Actually, in just a couple of days, on Friday uh, the 9th, there'll be a 50% off sale on the Moody Publishers website, so my book and others will be available then. Oh, excellent. So listeners do make note of it. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. In his uh, introduction, he writes, In his great wisdom, God gave us both Paul's epistles and the epistle of James. We ignore one or both of these to our great loss. But as we learn to read these letters as part of the glorious, unified teaching about justification, faith, and works, we will walk away with a stronger confidence in the unity of God's revelation in the whole Bible, greater faith in God's promises, and a deeper hope in the transforming work of the Spirit. Isn't that what we are after? Again, the book, Paul versus James, what we've been missing in the faith and works debate, beginning with looking at the lives of these two uh, writers uh, of the scriptures. And I think that helps give us the context that helps to clarify some of our confusion. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, many of us have been following the salon owner, Lindsey Graham, in Salem. She, um, of course, uh, reopened her salon, Glamour, in early May. She's since been fined $14,000 for reopening. She reopened in order to feed her family, and she's since been fined $14,000 for attempting to feed her family. We'll leave that aspect alone for a moment, but... Uh, She says that Child Protective Services were sent to her home to check on her children after she reopened her establishment in defiance of the governor's stay-at-home order. So in addition to being fined $14,000 for reopening her salon in order to feed her children, she has uh, been visited by Child Protective Services. Well, here to tell us a bit about this is Andrew Brown. He's the director of the Center for Families and Children at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. I appreciate your taking the time to uh, to join us to talk about this case here in Oregon uh, and the challenge that this mother has faced in trying to put food on the table in her household. Welcome. Thanks, Georgine. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, you know, it's it's a bit puzzling um, how this case and others across the country have uh, have played out. But to learn that uh, Child Protective Services were sent to the home of Lindsey Graham in Salem, who has not had any difficulty with her family, and there's never been an accusation. She doesn't have a relationship with Child Protective Services. Is there any um, uh, any idea of who uh, suggested that she needed to be visited or what the link might be to her reopening her shop and since being fined this exorbitant amount of money for trying to feed her family? Not that I've been able to find, and I think it's important to point out that DHS can't comment on the background of this story at all due to confidentiality laws, Um, and they're disputing the allegations. But if Mrs. Graham's allegation turns out to be true, that this was a retaliatory investigation, I think the public's right to be outraged 
about it. Um, but again, this is in dispute and confidentiality rules. We'll likely never know how this was initiated. Uh, for us, what was really interesting being a group that's based in Austin, Texas, watching uh, the news in Oregon, uh, it was this CPS investigation linked to an economic decision that was made on the part of a mother trying to care for her family and for her employees in the midst of the shutdown orders that I think every state really is dealing with in their own ways, but have put millions out of work and led to, by last uh, reports, over 100,000 small businesses going completely out of business as a result of these shutdown orders. Um, For me, as somebody who focuses on child welfare issues, family law, and specifically child protective services, if there was a link here to a much bigger picture about child protective services often getting involved with families due primarily to conditions that are more rooted in poverty and how the shutdown orders and the loss of jobs and loss of businesses could be contributing to kids entering foster care in the coming months that maybe don't need to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about uh, about your work and um, kids who enter foster care because of poverty. Now, generally speaking, who calls Child Protective Services? Who's responsible for that initial visit? Does DHS initiate this or does it come from outsiders or is it a combination of, of uh, different ways the families are approached? It comes from outside and typically the highest reporters are medical professionals and educators. Uh, it stands to reason that kids go into the hospital with suspicious injuries. The doctors mm-hmm. will make the phone call. The kids are in school and the teachers have access to them and they'll see things that are suspicious. These are also professions that are in most states classified as mandatory reports. Mm-hmm. That is, they're required by law to report any suspicion that they have. Now in Texas, where I'm from, we're all mandatory reporters. It doesn't matter if you're a professional or not, but other states have uh, different laws. I'm not quite sure how Oregon sets that up, but typically what you see is teachers and medical professionals being the top sources of reports to DHS. And I think most of us would agree we want to make sure that children are safe, they're in an environment where they can thrive. But when poverty is the underlying issue, describe how that might play out. Right, and it plays out through what's called neglect. Uh, 60% of child welfare investigations in the United States are for neglect only. That is, they don't have any allegation of physical abuse, any allegation of sexual abuse, things that are horrible that tend to make the headlines. Uh, The vast majority of kids that go into foster care as well, 62% of entries in the United States in 2018 cited neglect as the reason for that child being removed from their family. And by way of comparison, Physical abuse accounts for roughly 10% of all child maltreatment cases in the U.S. Sexual abuse is about 7% based on federal data. Now, what this tells us is what the public generally thinks of happening when CPS comes in, the horror stories that you see on the front pages. Yes, these are awful things that happen, and we should be doing everything in our power to prevent them. But this is not the majority of cases. And we have to understand, okay, what does neglect mean? Mm -hmm. And when you really start digging into the various laws of the states, it's really hard to figure out what neglect means because statutes tend to be 
very broad and very vague. And so even a state like Texas, where we have some laws on the books that attempt to mitigate removals of children into foster care for things primarily rooted in poverty, our neglect numbers are still off the charts. About 75% of confirmed maltreatment cases in Texas are for something called neglectful supervision, which our equivalent of your DHS defines as, and I'm quoting from their website here, improper supervision of a child left alone, which could have resulted in substantial harm. So with such a broad definition and one that's got some speculative aspects there that could have resulted, it's no wonder that over the last 20 years in Texas, we've seen investigations for neglectful supervision triple while investigations for all other types of allegations like physical and sexual abuse have remained relatively flat, if not declined, during that same period of time. And what's rooted a lot in this investigation of neglect specifically is tied to things like job loss and economic instability. For example, if we look back at the last major um, economic disruption, we found in the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, substance abuse increased, particularly among workers in blue-collar sales and service occupations. And that can be something that's a result of poverty or neglect. But even if you look at neglect itself and just the clear connection with poverty alone, not including co-occurring issues is what we call them, like substance abuse or mental Mm -hmm. health. One study in particular found an incredibly strong association between reports to CPS for neglect and periods of parental unemployment. So basically what these academic researchers found was periods of higher joblessness when parents lose jobs, you also see reports to CPS for neglect going up, which suggests that there is a pretty strong correlation between joblessness and neglect. And with more people unemployed, I think it's probable that we're going to see an increase in neglect-related entries increase in the coming months, which is something that policymakers and child welfare officials specifically should be taking a look at and working uh, to prevent, if at all possible. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine there's a significant amount of stress on the foster care system as well, and to continue to stress that when it could be mitigated in other ways. Well, there's a lot to be uh, to be said about what you've just shared with us. We're just about out of time, so I'd love to have you back to talk further about um, how we can avoid this, and you've you've suggested that this needs to be looked at certainly by CPS and uh, agencies that oversee the welfare of children. But I again, I'd love to have you back to talk further about um, what we might do to uh, prevent this from being the trend that continues, particularly coming out of this pandemic and moving forward. I'd be happy to, and just really quickly, I think three things off that we can get into deeper at another visit is. I mean, the most immediate necessary step for states to take is to quickly and safely reopen their economies so those families who are struggling with joblessness can get back to work and start providing for their families again. Tightening that definition of neglect up so it's not as likely that we're going to confuse poverty with something that's putting a child in danger is another step. And finally, and I think for your audience in particular, increasing the role of churches in helping families that are struggling with these co-occurring issues, with mental health struggles, Mm -hmm. with substance use issues, that's a perfect place for the church and community nonprofit organizations to step in rather than DHS. Absolutely. Well, once again, I really appreciate your uh, talking with us today, and we'll be in touch and have you back. I'd like to finish this conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Again, uh, Stephen Williams, uh, excuse me, um, Andrew Brown is the director of the Center for Families and Children at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, and there's just a lot there to unpack. We'll definitely invite him back to continue this conversation. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next is Stephen Williams, founder and director of Prepare the Way, lead pastor at Bend Community Church. We'll talk about the legal challenge to the governor's emergency declarations that have closed and shuttered churches all across the state. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've been following the story involving 10 churches and a number of uh, businesses and individuals who sued the state of Oregon, the governor, for her stay-at-home order. Um, uh, Prepare the Way Ministries and Bend Community Church, along with churches and businesses and individuals across the state, applauded a decision yesterday that was given by the Baker County Circuit Court declaring that Governor Brown's violated Governor, Governor Brown rather violated the Oregon Constitution in her emergency declaration. She said at the time that she would appeal to the Supreme Court, and since then, as we discussed earlier in the program, the Oregon Supreme Court has uh, stayed the judge's decision, meaning that the restrictions under Governor Brown's order remain in effect until the court hears and makes a decision on the state's appeal. Now, the um, case was filed on the 6th of May in Baker County. Uh, There were two key complaints, and here to talk with us about the original complaint and where things stand right now is Stephen Williams, founder and director of Prepare the Way and lead pastor at Bend Community Church. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, Georgie, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, let's start with the challenge itself. There were, as I mentioned, there were two key complaints. What was the complaint brought in the suit against Governor Brown? Well, the key parts of it were Article 10A of the Oregon Constitution very clearly uh, stipulates that if uh, the governor declares an emergency and goes beyond a 30-day period, she, by law, has to get a three-fifths majority approval of the entire Oregon legislature to extend that uh, emergency declaration. And there are other, other rules and other parts of things that also limited her powers to, to two 14-day periods. Um, and then also Article 1 of the Constitution refers to the free exercise of religion, one of these just critically important rights that the founders understood as absolutely central and critical to uh, all of our rights as citizens. Well, as you may know, there was, I believe it was in the Oregonian, a uh, law professor from Willamette University who responded to those uh, challenges, and he pointed out that there are three different laws the governor could have uh, used to implement her executive order. And part of the argument at this point, if I understand it correctly, is that she used a different statute um, to implement her executive order than the one that you have uh, cited in your case. Your your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I uh, was an attendee. Uh, when this case was argued, uh, and then also during the decision that Matthew uh, Shirtcliffe, the, the Baker County judge, when he issued it, and and I'm thoroughly impressed with uh, Ray Hackey of Pacific Justice Institute and Kevin Mannix did an absolutely masterful job of showing how all of those three different areas that talk about different emergency declarations, they're not done independently. You can't kind of pick and choose, mm-hmm. you know, one of them. They really work well together. And that's where Governor Brown really completely violated the Constitution and these other rules. 
Uh, and then the judge, I think, absolutely crystal clearly articulated in his, um, you know, description of, of his, his judgment, you know, how these are, are related together. You can read his, his entire judgment, and it's absolutely clear, you know, that, that Governor Brown completely violated uh, not just the Constitution, but um, uh, her kind of powers within this emergency declaration. Now, we knew at the time that uh, the judge in Baker County Circuit Court rendered uh, the decision that the governor would appeal that to the Supreme Court. They have now um, issued a stay of that judge's decision. What can we expect to happen now? And I know they, they're not required to act immediately, um, but they can. Do you have any idea what the timeline is likely to be like and what your expectations are with the Oregon Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but from what I understand in reading these decisions, the Oregon Supreme Court, like you said late last night, stayed the order, which is just, as you said, put a pause on it. Uh, and so now they're going to uh, give time for both sides to give some more legal arguments. Uh, they're going to meet either Friday evening or next week, my understanding is, to decide whether they throw out the judges, you know, uh, Matthew Shercliffe's ruling and overturn that and then reinstate, you know, officially all of, of Governor Brown's, you know, mandates and decrees and <laughs> all of the different things. Um, but yeah, so I would, if I had to guess, I'm thinking next week uh, would be kind of a time frame. As you um, may be aware, there was an opinion piece that appeared in the Oregonian saying churches challenging stay-home order have forgotten whom they serve. And Chuck uh, Curry, uh, who is uh, lives in northeast Portland, he's a, a, apparently a minister at the United Church of Christ, uh, argued that this is not the right thing for churches to do. And he cites 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the way God designed our bodies as a model for understanding our lives together as the church. Uh, describe for us what you would like to accomplish by challenging the the governor's stay um, in light of decisions that have been made that allow certain businesses, for example, to remain open if certain um, practices are observed to protect the public. Yeah, you know, I have the honor of being our president of our local Ben Ministerial Association and then in a greater sense working with pastors across the state of Oregon and really the Pacific Northwest I'm working with hundreds of, of different pastors, and thankfully, the vast majority of the body of Christ are 100% behind this, uh, you know, this court case and what's going forward. You have some more liberal churches and liberal uh, individuals mm -hmm. and denominations who are kind of against it, but praise the Lord that, that there's really great unity in this, this area moving forward. That would be one point. Second is the main reason for this is to just say churches are absolutely essential and are the lifeblood of our communities. Why would we not give churches like Governor Noam of South Dakota, you know, has respected the citizens of her state to handle it appropriately. She, there was never a, a shelter in place or a complete lockdown or shutdown in South Dakota. And isn't it interesting that the deaths in South Dakota are dramatically lower from COVID-19 than in Oregon, you know, with this very draconian hmm. type of shutdown that's happened here. So my, our, our purpose is to just say, look, churches are very essential to the lifeblood of our community. And we need to honor pastors and churches with being able to, to meet safely and, and give them the trust and respect to say, hey, you, if, if liquor stores and pot shops 
can, you know, be essential, then certainly churches are, and the pastors can meet safely and decide how to do that. How do you envision churches being opened up again, uh, coming together for worship? You know, it's going to vary dramatically. Like, um, Ben Community Church is a house church, so, you know, we're, we're practicing meeting safely in, in our homes. Uh, other churches, you know, they have some churches that are massive amount of square footing, and they could very easily... I've, I've already had pastors showing me, well, here's some great plans where we can maintain social distancing and do these things. So churches want to do this responsibly, but our point is just let them make those decisions safely. Yeah, it's interesting because it seems to me some of the portrayals of the church is that we want to meet, and therefore we're going to be shoulder to shoulder, singing in each other's faces with total disregard for the the dangers of COVID-19, rather than assuming that leaders in the community that have served the community well would take um, every step uh, necessary to protect not only the parishioners, but those their parishioners come in contact with uh, after a service would take place. So I appreciate your um, making the point that we recognize the environment that we're in, but it should be left to churches and uh, pastoral uh, teams and so on to make decisions about how to protect one another and to consider the community outside. Yes, I mean, and, and it's sad when the liberal media kind of takes one of these outliers, you know, where it shows some church or some group where they're just doing some hug fest. And, and again, working with, you know, hundreds of pastors, 90 some odd percent, you know, that's not going to be the case. We're going to handle it. They care about their congregants. They don't mm-hmm. want to get the congregants sick. And so we're going to handle it responsibly. So at this point, we're looking at the possibility of the Supreme Court making a decision or at least deliberating as early as next week. Yeah, my guess would be if they make a, a real rush decision, it could happen Friday evening, but it seems like they they might want to deliberate a little bit, which is reasonable. Sadly, most of the justices on our Oregon Supreme Court have been uh, either appointed by Kate Brown or are kind of very left-leaning, so I'm not hopeful there, but uh, if it is, if, if the, the judge's decision, Matthew Shirtcliffe's decision is overturned, um, we can appeal to the United States Supreme Court, and, and I think we'll have a better chance of getting a fair uh, decision there. Now, that'll have nationwide ramifications because many other states are actually dealing with this exact situation right now. Yeah, I think part of the mistake from the beginning was to declare churches as non-essential. And I think that offended many people as you consider the role that the church plays in ministering to the broader community, not just congregants. We'll certainly continue to follow this story with interest and uh, pray that the wisdom would prevail ultimately here in the state of Oregon and across the fruited plain uh, with regard to this governor and others uh, in the nation. Thank you so much, Pastor, for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, Georgine. God bless you. God bless you as well. Appreciate it very much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be back, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, if you're looking for something to do this evening, something to watch that's going to stimulate your thinking, no safe spaces, one of 2019's top-earning political documentaries is now available to watch at home. Critics called No Safe Spaces smart and vital, urgent, one of the most important documentaries that you need to see today. That's underlined and in bold. It tells uh, disturbing stories of how America is becoming a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas. But does it in an entertaining and powerful way? 
Still puzzles me how they pull that off. The film stars Dennis Prager, Adam Carolla, but also features Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, Tim Allen. No surprise there, but personalities on the left like Van Jones, Cornell West and Alan Dershowitz. If you wonder about the depth of political correctness on college campuses and beyond that issues free speech, you'll find No Safe Spaces eye-opening and disturbing. It will make you laugh, it'll make you cry, but more importantly, it will make you think. No Safe Spaces is available now to watch for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com for $19.95. But wait, there's more. For KPDQ listeners, use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off. You could probably have worked that out yourself. nosafespaces.com. Put that on your list of things to do today. Well, biotech company Moderna has announced today that, rather on Monday, uh, that its potential COVID-19 vaccine produced antibodies in all 45 participants in a trial, which is a significant milestone in the fight against the coronavirus pandemic. Their announcement came as biotech Syntodyne announced that it is eyeing a trial for its potential coronavirus treatment, a larinlimab, or something like that, in uh, combination with an antiviral remdesivir. The drug is a viral entry inhibitor that has uh, targeted HIV and breast cancer, and it's been attracting attention as a potential coronavirus treatment. Meanwhile, a U.K. trial is uh, to develop a coronavirus vaccine, if successful, could deliver 30 million doses by September. That's according to a British uh, business secretary, Alok Sharma, uh, during a press conference making that announcement on Sunday. Um, again, we're not talking about a cure that's just around the corner. We're not going to get a vaccine in the next few months or weeks, but we are looking at most likely the start of 2021, possibly sooner. But this is very encouraging as we're seeing an accelerated effort to come up with a vaccine for COVID-19. Meanwhile, the European Union and other countries on Monday called for an independent evaluation of the World Health Organization's response to the coronavirus pandemic to review experience gained and lessons learned. That's a quote from the European Union. So it's not just the United States that pointing the, that's pointing the finger and demanding answers. The World Health Organization has been heavily criticized for allegedly downplaying China's role in the start of the pandemic. A senior medical advisor in China acknowledged the country initially underreported the number of infections in Wuhan, the epicenter of the outbreak, and described a potential second wave as a big challenge, according to Reuters. Three Republican members of Congress are pushing the Trump administration to sanction individual Chinese government officials over what they call their duplicitous, ineffective and cruel response the coronavirus outbreak. And in New Jersey, a gym owner on Monday defied government lockdown orders and said that after three months of complying with the Garden State's stay-at-home mandate, residents and business owners are sick and tired of their rights being trampled. Well, we'll see what happens there. I don't think a gym is a place I'd probably want to start out uh, attending under these circumstances. Well, Disney World has issued a couple of disclaimers for guests planning to visit Disney Springs uh, when it begins its phase reopening on the 20th of May, one of which appears to indicate that Disney Parks uh, is absolved of all liability to anyone infected with coronavirus during their trip. And there were several other developments as well. Senator Kelly Loeffler is urging the Department of Veterans Affairs to allow small groups to participate in the placement of American flags at national cemeteries for Memorial Day. I mentioned 
uh, last week or perhaps early this week that that was prohibited under the current rules. The department issued a recent order to prohibit the traditional observances amid the coronavirus crisis. And of course, on Memorial Day, that's a practice that Boy Scouts and others have engaged in to honor our war dead. Officials have yet to see coronavirus cases spiking in states that are reopening. That's good news, at least for now. Although it's still too early to determine such patterns, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar said on Sunday. Peter Navarro, the White House trade advisor, suggested in an interview on Sunday that China sent hundreds of thousands on aircraft throughout the world to seed the spread of the virus. I'm not sure I've heard that or any evidence to support that, but that's a quote from the White House trade advisor, Peter Navarro. The Treasury Department has yet to um, disperse any of the $46 billion in funds to the airline industry contained in the massive coronavirus relief package approved in March, according to a Congressional Oversight Commission report released on Monday. Now, that's also true for many states who haven't taken advantage of money that was made available to them because this is money they have to pay back. And some are suggesting they don't want to have to pay back money uh, that they use during this pandemic. And Royal Caribbean International reportedly might be doing away with its traditional buffet service when sailing finally resumes. I, I, I have to take a moment and just mourn the loss of the cruise buffet. One of my favorite aspects of being on a cruise ship, as you know, we here at KPDQ have hosted a number of cruises and you know that 24-hour day and night, middle of the night, middle of the day, anytime, anytime place. Uh, Buffet is one of the things people enjoy the most and why they come off the ship weighing a little bit more than they weighed when they came on board. Well, President Trump today announced a $19 billion coronavirus food assistance program to support farmers and ranchers and maintain the health of the food supply chain in the United States amid the virus. The farmers and ranchers are incredible people, the president said during comments at the White House. I'm proud to stand right by their side in this hour, in their hour, of need. The president said the new program would provide $16 billion directly to farmers and ranchers. No other president has done this, Trump said. I'll uh, tell you, you can go back to Abraham Lincoln. There's no president who has treated the farmers like Trump who, um, who wouldn't who would be with Trump. A little personal plug, apparently. He added, it's an hour to do it. Actually, these are great, great people. Well, as part of the program, $16 billion in direct payments will be made to farmers and ranchers directly. The president noted that the program is authorized by the CARES Act, the coronavirus stimulus package, which totaled more than $2 trillion and passed in March. The president said the payments would compensate farmers for losses they have sustained due to COVID-19. The administration is offering to fund the funds to farmers and ranchers producing corn, cotton, soybeans, specialty crops, beef, dairy, pork, and more. The president said that farmers and ranchers can begin signing up for the billions of dollars in assistance later this month on the 26th of May. You need to sign up to pick it up to get the money, the president said, and we'll start issuing payments within one week of receiving your application. The president said that the $16 billion would go directly to farmers and that the remaining $3 billion in the $19 billion program is being used to purchase products for food lines. Meanwhile, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue and White House Senior Advisor Ivanka Trump announced the USDA Family Food Box. As part of the Coronavirus Farm Assistance Program announced last month, the U.S. Department of Agriculture purchased and distributed up to $3 billion of agricultural products to those in need. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, he warned on Tuesday that individuals who reject an offer from their company to return to work after being laid off 
due to coronavirus are no longer considered eligible to receive federal unemployment benefits. He said that companies receiving benefits under the payroll protection program who are inviting employees to uh, who have been laid off or furloughed due to the coronavirus crisis to return to work should plan to notify state unemployment offices of their offers. So this is sort of the honor system. If the employee in turn turns down the job, they would then be considered ineligible to receive expanded unemployment benefits. Now, we've talked here before about the fact that some are receiving more in unemployment benefits with that $600 extension than they made while working. And so getting employees to return to work has been something of a challenge. Mnuchin said if you offer a person a job and that person does not take the job, then that person would not be allowed to get unemployment. Again, I don't know if the employer is expected to notify the um, authorities or if the employee is uh, supposed to notify them. But on principle, that's the way it uh, it's supposed to be uh, set up. Well, the distribution of some $1,200 stimulus checks to Americans has given rise to unprecedented online scams. When we return, we'll tell you a little bit about uh, at least one of them. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I wanted to get into the five coronavirus stimulus check scams and how to avoid them, but I think we're going to probably get into that tomorrow. I will say that with the dis- uh, distribution of some uh, stimulus checks, those $1,200 checks, of which I have yet to receive one, by the way, it's given rise to unprecedented online scams, and among them, robocall check scams, email and text scams, identity theft scams, um, Those are just a few. There's a Google search scam. There's a third-party stimulus check scam. So you need to keep your eyes and ears open. And I promise I'll make time tomorrow. Actually, not tomorrow. But I'll make time next week to uh, get into what they are and how to avoid them. So don't do anything rash in the meantime. Uh, Tomorrow, of course, is our Food for the Poor Radiothon. That will be Wednesday and Thursday. So that will preclude uh, covering that subject. But I did want to take sufficient time today Uh, to mourn the death of Ravi Zacharias, who has uh, died of cancer. Now, he has gone on to his reward, so I mourn the loss of his presence and his voice in our culture today. I don't mourn the loss of a life that I know is now in the presence of the Lord, but this uh, apologist, Ravi Zacharias, who died on Tuesday, two months after he announced he had uh, been diagnosed with cancer, was 74, and a great loss to the Christian community. The popular author and Christian teacher was known for his work through Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Uh, They focused on apologetic arguments for the existence of God and the reasonableness of Christianity, and he did it so well, he and his compatriots. He preached in more than 70 countries. He authored more than 30 books in his 48-year career. He taught Christians to engage with skeptics and argue that the Christian worldview was robust. It had answers to humanity's existential questions and provided them so well. He was born in India. He was raised in an Anglican home. He recounted that his conversion to Christianity came while he was reading the Bible in the hospital after a failed suicide attempt as a teenager. He immigrated to Canada at the age of 20. It just emphasizes the importance of having God's word available to people who are convalescing in hospitals or hotel rooms or uh, in this um, in this case, while he was uh, recovering from a failed um, suicide attempt, what if that Bible had not been present? What course might his life have taken? And we would have been deprived of this tremendous ministry. But I digress. Zacharias, he started his ministry with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, or CMA, a graduate of the Ontario Bible College, now Tyndale University. 
and Trinity International University. He was commissioned as a national evangelist for the U.S. in 1977. He was ordained in the CMA in 1980. He founded Rabbi Zacharias Ministries in 1984. And the organization had grown to about 200 employees in 16 offices around the world with more than 70 traveling speakers. So the ministry will continue in his absence. His best-selling book, Can Man Live Without God, sold over 500,000 copies in 1995. His most recent book, The Logic of God, 52 Christian Essentials for the Heart and Mind, won the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association's 2020 Christian Book Award in the Bible Study category. Late in his ministry career, he faced claims that he overstated his academic background and implied that he had earned a doctorate degree over the years. He, uh, Rabbi Zacharias Ministries and he himself, his publishers, revised his biographies to clarify that he has received honorary doctorates and removed references to Dr. Zacharias, which under that configuration, I, I suppose, is acceptable but needed to be clarified. He was also involved in a legal dispute over sexually explicit communications with someone he met through his speaking ministry. Her lawyer said uh, Zacharias had uh, groomed and exploited her. Um, Zacharias sued, and the lawsuit was settled out of court with a non-disclosure agreement. Earlier this year, doctors discovered a malignant tumor, uh, tumor rather, on Zacharias' sacrum. As he underwent back surgery, he began receiving treatment for sarcoma at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. The ministry posted an update on the 8th of May saying that his cancer was deemed untreatable. He was sent home to Atlanta to be with his family. On social media, a wide range of Christians, including Lee Strobel, Tim Tebow, Christine Kane, posted tributes uh, with the hashtag, Thank You, Ravi. He is survived by his wife, Margaret, and their three children. Again, such a great, um, a great loss. Um, Lauren Green pointed out that Ravi Zacharias's passing is more than just the death of a man. It's the end of an era, the end of a life that millions looked to for spiritual guidance and inspiration. But like all endings, it can signal a new beginning, a new chapter. Ravi, my spiritual friend and mentor, died this morning, succumbing to the cancer that had crept into his life just a few months ago. A simple surgery to relieve some back problems revealed the much more sinister malady, cancer, as right out of Satan's arsenal. It comes at us from all angles of our uh, being and nestles into our bodies on the cellular level, feeding off its healthy host, eventually destroying it. Rabbi's daughter, Sarah Davis, wrote on the morning of his passing that a few months ago before death was even a shadow of reality. He recited this stanza of a more than 300-year-old hymn. The first verse begins, Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live, to love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. Such a man as Rabbi was ready to meet the Lord on whatever day was ordained, and that day was ordained to be today. Rabbi Zacharias, at 74, has gone to be with his Lord and Savior he represented so well. I want to thank James Blinn for uh, producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. Tomorrow on the program, Food for the Poor. We'll let you know what's going on in the Caribbean and how we can come alongside and help them during this pandemic as we ourselves struggle. Um, so I hope you will plan to join us. I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day, and I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.